and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host Daniel Larison as we attempt to cast some bright sunshine into the dark corners of Washington foreign policy and national security spin, corruption, and myth-making. Moreover, we want to make clear what the imperial city wants to deliberately muddle and mystify so that you know what the government is doing with your tax dollars and in your name. In the second segment, we'll be talking to Brussels-based foreign policy advisor and columnist Eldar Mamdov about the last week's prisoner swap deal between the U.S. and Iran. But first, there was an interesting article by the New York Times writer Michael Crowley yesterday that posed the age-old question in this war with Ukraine, wither the peace movement. Crowley, a reliably conventional supporter of the Washington establishment seemed to think he was stumbling on a new thread in the war coverage when it has been painfully obvious for some time that many left-leaning anti-war voices in the U.S., especially those that align themselves with democratic politics, have been incredibly supportive of Washington's Ukraine policy. They have been supportive of continuing the war at all costs and have been particularly unsupportive of voices that have called for ending the war through a focused focus instead on diplomatic pathways and negotiations. In Crowley's words, it is not uncommon to hear peace activists and progressive politicians, including many who have opposed American interventions elsewhere, make an exception for Ukraine's self-defense against Russia. Even as casualties amount, amount among troops and civilians, these are Crowley's worlds now. Global food shortages grow. Talk of nuclear war hovers, and by President Biden outrage, outrages human rights groups by providing Ukraine with cluster munitions. Only pockets of resistance to U.S. support for Ukraine exist on the American political left. He continues, this is a departure from recent American political tradition in which opposition to involvement in foreign wars from Vietnam to Iraq to Afghanistan has been strong on the left, while conservatives have been more willing to support the flexing of American power abroad, end quote. He also quotes Stephen Miles of Win Without War, which has been quite anti-interventionist during the Iraq war as saying, quote, these were wars of choice that should should never have been fought. And ultimately, the onus for ending the war is with the aggressor. Crowley holds up code pink as an almost lonely other side, defending the anti-war movement against win, win without war, peace action, and Matt Duss, former Bernie Sanders chief advisors. So what bothers me most about this, Dan, is that Crowley raises Michael Walzer's 1977 book, The Just and Unjust Wars, and says the author himself says this this war, the Ukrainian war, squares with that and that this is, quote, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is being illegal under international law, and it is unjust according to every vision or version of just war theory. Therefore, progressives who might otherwise support a peace movement will, in this case, support the war in the name of defense and territorial sovereignty. I also am a, a little um, wary, personally, that these voices, these progressive voices who have been pro-war in this case, as I've you know described them, are being unwitting supporters and tools of the military-industrial complex because 
the administration, official Washington, um, the military, and uh, the and, and the defense industry has been talking about Ukraine in terms of a long slog and a long war. And I feel that we are being pushed into a for, forever war situation. And when you have you know these progressives making emotional arguments for just that. I, I am concerned that they are bolstering the arguments of the very people that they have criticized in the past as um, being part of a uh, a war machinery that doesn't have the best interests of whether it be Americans or the people that we are hoping to liberate on the other side. So, um, what are your what are your thoughts on this article and some of the arguments that are ma- being made within it? Sure. So yeah, I was, it was interesting the way that Crowley framed the whole piece because it, it occurred – at one point he talks about uh, sort of partisanship being one of the clauses for uh, the support coming from the left uh, for Biden's policy. And, and I think that actually explains a, a, whole, a lot of it. It may, may not explain all of it, but I, I n- notice over the years the same kind of thing happened under Obama where a lot of the energy in the anti-war movement – just went away once Obama was in office. Uh, and and you then ended up having a lot of people that had been very stridently anti-war when the war was being waged under Bush becoming much either more muted uh, or becoming actually supporters of Obama's own interventions. I'm, I'm thinking of the, you know, the Libyan war being one place where you had a lot of uh, progressives and a lot of liberal hawks uh, suddenly uh, you know, embracing military intervention again because they they claimed that it was being done for the right reasons it was being it was it was a good it was with the good intervention not the bad intervention and and you saw a similar sort of muted response from the left uh to yemen when obama was the one doing it you only really saw the the energy in the coalition uh against that war uh grow uh when trump was the one running it and so you know he he sets up this Contrast between the, you know, a, a tradition of, say, anti-war opposition in the past versus support for a war policy today, and I, I think it it misses some of those some of those other examples that show that that there does tend to be a lot of benefit of the doubt given to democratic presidents uh, when they're running a policy like this. Uh, whether it's involving direct intervention or support for someone else's war. Um, the other thing that I, I thought was interesting about it is that you don't really hear anything about the, the big coalition against the war in Yemen uh, when talking about attitudes towards this war. When there, you know, in some ways there there are there are some parallels or there are some similarities there. Where, in in the case of Yemen, our government's policy was and and still is to back the aggressors. Uh, today, in Ukraine, it's it's the opposite. Or it is it is to support the country that's being attacked. Right. Uh, but during the debate over Yemen policy, you never had anyone saying, "Oh, well, then we should arm the people fighting the Saudis. We should arm Yemenis against their attackers." Everybody who was against the war was against the war entirely and, and was not in, in fueling it, regardless of the justice of, of either side. Uh, where you know clearly 
the Yemenis were in the right to resist the attack on their country, just as Ukrainians are in the right to resist the attack on their country. But the question, the policy question should be, at what point does throwing weapons into the mix end up prolonging and intensifying it and thus harming more people? Uh, and, and and when is it, uh, when does the time come to recognize that we need to have a ceasefire and a truce? And And Yemen has benefited from having a truce now for the over a year now, uh, which they had not enjoyed uh, during most of the time when we were having that debate over Yemen. Uh, and so the, the question becomes, why why would a truce or a ceasefire in Ukraine be unacceptable? Why, why is talking about it considered somehow uh, to... to politically uh, risky or, or too out there. And I, I think people are beginning to recognize that it shouldn't be this unacceptable or unspeakable option. It's, it's, it's an, a necessary one that has to be considered. And so I think that one of the, the flaws in this article is that it doesn't really capture the range of views that you see. Right. So there, there could be many people, I think, including us, who are willing to grant that providing support to repel aggression is one thing, but providing sort of open-ended support in the in the pursuit of an illusory total victory is something very different. And so th- there needs to be more, there are more gradations of, of uh, opinion about this war that get lost in this sort of uh, either being 100% pro-Biden or being completely opposed to everything that Biden did. Uh, that's not how most people are responding to the policy uh, here in the country. And and that's not the way that most people respond to any policy. You're going to to have degrees of disagreement and agreement uh, that, that need to be acknowledged and, and worked out. I, I completely agree. And with particularly with your point about the missing gradations, one thing that hit me about this article uh, by Michael Crawley that we're talking about, and I'm going to get up here for our our, um, our listeners if they want to take a look, and we'll put these in the sh- we'll put it in the show notes as well. But it's called "For Ukraine: Many Anti-War Activists in the U.S. Make an Exception," and it was um, posted by the New York Times on August 14th, and it's by Michael Crawley. I think one of my first reactions was how simplistic. The piece was how how it it oversimplified the framing in which it 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 sort of gave the impression that Code Pink was the only piece, first of all was the only peace group out there that was doing all the heavy lifting to caution against uh, pursuing an aggressive war policy in Ukraine and focusing more on diplomacy than on plying Ukraine with weapons, and that the other folks that were interviewed, the peace groups such as Win Without War and Peace Action and Matt Duss, the former foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders, were the more thoughtful um, heirs to the peace movement, that they that they are making the exception because there is a, a logical reason for this and that Code Pink and the others were just reactionaries. They're just knee-jerk peaceniks who are just 
going by the old playbooks of Iraq and Afghanistan, and that they were actually making thoughtful choices about how they were positioning on this war. That was my reaction to it. It, it, it makes those left of center progressive uh, non-interventionists look um, just like they are just more with it. And that Medea Benjamin and others, and frankly, they didn't interview others, um, were living in the past. And that, and that bothered me because it didn't, like you say, flesh out and it didn't provide more context about uh, why there has been this schism on the left. And frankly, we've known about this for some time. We've talked about it on our show for over a year and a half. We've noticed that the, 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 the tensions are existing on the left because progressives are not all in agreement on how they should feel about this war. And there are very, there's a very active debate over just war theory and whether or not progressives should be supporting Ukraine on humanitarian grounds. And then the idea that the only position on this war um, should be supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes, because that is the moral imperative. And we've talked about this on the show as not wanting to cede that argument, that there can be a moral argument made for shifting focus and energy on diplomacy and ending the, the, um, the destruction of this country and the human toll by getting to the table sooner. So anyway, I feel like this is an ongoing argument. Michael Crowley comes into it a bit late, uh, but I do see this as trying to um, chill some of the debate on the left flank by suggesting that there is no credible peace movement that is calling for an end to the war in Ukraine through diplomacy and as is questioning the amount of aid um, or the amount of uh, the amount of weapons and assistance that would prolong the war longer than it already has been. Happy to introduce Eldar Mamadov to Crashing the War Party this week. We're very excited. He is a Brussels-based foreign policy expert who has written for a number of outlets, including Eurasianet, Responsible Statecraft, the American Conservative, and he's been working on uh, the West uh, relations between uh, the West and Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, and other issues. And You know, we have a lot to talk about, but thank you so much for being on the show today, Eldar. Thanks for having me, Kel. Great. Uh, My pleasure. So I'm going to get right into um, the issue of the Iran-U.S. deal that was announced last week, which would include a prisoner swap and include also the unfreezing of assets that the, I believe, the South Koreans have been holding uh, that are the result of U.S. sanctions on Iran. There's been a lot of criticism about this deal. Of course, the the usual hawks, as you 
pointed out in your piece of responsible statecraft just last week, you know, the usual hawks have come out uh, criticizing the deal, uh, basically saying that Biden is soft on Iran, that he's giving all this money to Iran, even though it's their own money. Um, can you talk a little bit about the deal? Explain for our listeners what the deal is and maybe broaden it out to some of your thoughts on diplomacy between the U.S. and Iran and other areas where you feel like there is a lot of work yet to be done. Well, first of all, um, I think we need to look at a broader context uh, which um, brought to this deal. And the context is that uh, the money that we're talking about, this is uh, essentially Iranian money, uh, which has been earned by selling oil uh, to South Korea, uh, but it has been frozen in South Korea um, under the pressure from the Trump administration, and uh, that pressure has been exerted on South Korea because uh, the Trump administration uh, unilaterally withdrew uh, from the nuclear agreement known as JCPOA, uh, concluded in 2015. The Trump administration withdrew in 2018. Uh, even though uh, members of uh, Trump's own uh, government were recognizing at the time that uh, Iran was complying uh, with its commitments uh, under the deal, the, the administration still uh, withdrew uh, from it and instituted the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. And uh, one part of it was also the extraterritorial U.S. Uh, sanctions, uh, which is uh, which means that U.S. Uh, domestic legislation has been extended uh, all over the world, and uh, hence pressure was uh, applied on the South Korean government to basically freeze uh, that money that uh, belongs to Iran and that has been uh, earned by Iran's oil sales. Now, uh, what happened now is that this money uh, is being unfrozen, uh, but contrary to what uh, the critics of the deal and the usual hawks to which you alluded, uh, contrary to what they assert, the money does not go straight uh, to Iran's central bank. Uh, and uh, it's not that Iran can simply use it uh, the way it pleases. Uh, that money... Uh, is being transferred from South Korea first uh, to Switzerland. Uh, then it is, as I understand, uh, exchanged uh, to euros, converted into euros, and then it is uh, sent back uh, to uh, specific bank accounts in Qatar, uh, which uh, will be managing uh, the Iranian transactions. And those transactions... Uh, according to, the, to this deal, are limited exclusively to humanitarian uh, needs, Iranian humanitarian needs, basically medicines uh, uh, and food. So uh, the assertion that uh, Biden simply uh, has bought uh, those uh, imprisoned uh, Iranian-Americans or hostages uh, uh, simply for $6 billion um, dollars. This is an utter nonsense. Uh, this is uh, Iranian money that goes back to Iran, all made uh, subjected to very strict uh, conditions and monitoring. And the most important part of it is that those wrongly 
unjustly imprisoned uh, Iranian Americans. Uh, uh, they are released from prison right now. Uh, they are still still kept uh, in uh, hotels in Tehran in secured rooms, uh, and the whole process of actual uh, prisoner swap because there are also some prisoners, Iranian prisoners, uh, four Iranian prisoners that Americans are also releasing. So uh, the logistics and the mechanics of all this will take another um, four to five weeks or something like this. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the release of those unjust people, unjust imprisoned people is the most important uh, outcome of uh, this deal from the American point of view. Um, and I think uh, this alone justifies that uh, deal and makes it important. You know, it, this deal seems pretty straightforward to me, and it seems like a win-win for either side. You know, money yeah. uh, that uh, was frozen, that was, you know, originally Iranian money goes back to Iran, but it goes for humanitarian reasons and exchange. Uh, then there's this prisoner swap. I, I feel like there is a lot of overwrought criticism about the deal. I just saw Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, coming out saying that he uh, opposed this deal. Are we just talking about critics who absolutely don't want to see any movement of amity between the U.S. and Iran? And a deal like that moves the needle closer to uh, diplomatic openings that these critics just are afraid to see. And so they will come out and rail against a deal that on all on the face of it looks pretty good, straightforward, and a win for both sides. Well, uh, as I said, I think critics are uh, essentially dishonest uh, when they claim things that are simply not true. Uh, what they really are after, it seems to me, is to prevent uh, and to derail uh, any diplomacy between the US and Iran whatsoever. If that means uh, that um, those uh, wrongly detained and imprisoned Americans uh, should spend more time in jail, so be it, as long as uh, there is uh, no uh, diplomatic moves between US um, and Iran whatsoever. And um, judging by their reactions, I think uh, that's quite obvious. They do not uh, uh, pick apart or uh, criticize the specific uh, elements of the deal. They're just simply against the deal uh, as such, against the very concept of uh, U.S. Uh, dealing with Iran. And um, I think this should be recognized uh, as such. And uh, this kind of... Um, Criticism uh, is simply dishonest. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Elder, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's good to have you on here. Um, and and we, we've seen that that same dishonesty that you're talking about uh, coming from Falkish critics uh, for, for many years now, uh, going back to the beginning of the, the debate over the nuclear deal and, and uh, in, in all the eight years since it was agreed to, uh, where the, the terms of the deal are either misrepresented or simply made up uh, by by hawkish critics, uh, and then they will they will then knock down the, the straw man that they they've set up, uh, and and they're they're basically allowed to do this or they get away with doing this 
uh, in part because there's this very little accountability in our foreign policy debates, uh, as we talk about here uh, all the time. Um, uh, coming back to the JCPOA itself, uh, what uh, what hope do you have that this uh, prisoner swap deal might pave the way for for some kind of progress uh, on the nuclear negotiations, which as as we all know have been stalled now uh, for uh, well for all of this year and and for much of last year as well. Um, do you see any forward movement there at all, or is this really? sort of a consolation prize where we we get this one deal, but then the, the diplomatic track is not really going anywhere. I would certainly wish uh, that this deal um, uh, would have come to be some, some sort of uh, confidence-building measure uh, that would allow both sides uh, to move on on other topics. And frankly, there's plenty for U.S. and Iran uh, to discuss uh, the nuclear issue, the situation in Persian Gulf, Iran's support for Russia's war in Ukraine, um, all of these things. Uh, now, do I think that this deal uh, will pave the way uh, for uh, nuclear discussions, let alone uh, the revival of JCPOA in one form or another? Frankly, I do not think so at this point. I tend to see this deal as a rather... rather a transactional deal, uh, where the interests of uh, both sides uh, have coincided. And um, uh, there was a long and uh, diplomatically tough uh, process uh, that was mediated by other countries like Qatar and Oman and Switzerland, uh, the process that has led uh, to this mutually uh, satisfactory deal in which both sides uh, see it as a, which both sides see as win-win. Uh, but frankly, uh, at least at the moment, I do not see uh, that the conditions are yet there for uh, more wide-ranging talks, including on the nuclear issue. Now, um, I would not exclude that completely either. Uh, there was, uh, for example, uh, information that uh, Iran uh, has stopped short of uh, enriching uranium uh, up, up to 60%, which... Uh, time-wise uh, coincided uh, with the deal, uh, then there'll be, um, in September, there'll be a meeting with the Board of Gov Governors of the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which will revise uh, the cooperation uh, of Tehran with this body uh, so far. So we will see uh, what would come out of it. Uh, that there's also... Uh, UN General Assembly and President Raisi uh, possibly will travel uh, to New York and we will see whether that will also open uh, some other uh, channels of communication. Uh, but uh, I would be quite cautious and I think that the, most, uh, we could, the best we could hope for at this moment is for some modest incremental uh, steps uh, but not uh, be too hopeful about the revival of the nuclear issue. Because frankly, we also have to take into account the political context. The U.S. is, uh, the presidential uh, cycle is uh, approaching in U.S. And we see that in the Middle East, the priorities of the U.S. government are not quite a pushmong with Iran, but rather promote a deal, some kind of normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. On the other hand, uh, the government in Tehran 
uh, is known this particular government uh, for being quite skeptical uh, about relations with the US. Hence, this whole turn to East uh, uh, policy and the string of regional normalization deals, such as with Saudi Arabia. Um, so, um, um, again, I do not rule out uh, that this deal will serve as a kind of confidence-building measure for further talks, uh, but uh, at this point, I would rather treat it as a, as a one-off. Right. Yeah, and, I, and I'm afraid, I, I think that that's probably right, unfortunately. And, we, and even before this deal was concluded, uh, we saw that the, the, on the U.S. side, uh, the negotiating team sort of had taken a hit with Rob Malley being taken out of play, uh, going on leave over alleged questions about security clearance problems. Uh, we, and we don't know the story behind that. We don't know really what happened with that. Uh, but it, it certainly has undermined any, uh, any chance of, of making significant progress. I think when you don't have your, one of your lead negotiators involved in that process, right. Right. um, coming back to the, the prisoner swap deal, one of the things I thought was interesting about it, uh, and, and I talked about this a bit in my, my post that commented on, on what you had written, uh, is that it, it really shows the, the good things that can happen when the U S is prepared to be flexible and is willing to entertain sanctions relief and actually provide sanction relief. Uh, without making Iran jump through a lot of hoops to get it, uh, that it can actually clear the way or, or open doors to to diplomatic resolutions uh, when when the pressure is relieved in, at some point. And so, I wonder do do you think that if if this deal is completed and and the prisoners are released and get to come home, do you think that would change anything in the way that the Biden administration thinks about? Uh, the, the way that it has continued Trump's policy of maximum pressure, uh, do you think it would it would convince them see the wisdom and maybe offering some sanctions relief as an incentive to get the process going again? Well, again, I I'm quite skeptical because um, mostly because of domestic uh, political constraints uh, that uh, always exist when it comes to Iran uh, in the United States and. Uh, much more so uh, when we're approaching uh, presidential elections. Uh, so um, also the priorities of Biden administration in the Middle East, uh, they, they lie elsewhere. Uh, I frankly do not see that there is uh, much bandwidth uh, with the administration to pursue any kind of broader uh, normalization with Iran. Uh, but again, as I said, if uh, this deal uh, goes through and is uh, completed and both sides uh, uh, comply with their obligations, uh, then potentially it might uh, serve as some kind of confidence-building measure that would induce uh, both sides and prepare ground for both sides uh, to broach also other issues. Eldar, what do you think of the uh, prospects of a U.S.-Saudi security agreement and what would that do to the relationship with Iran, um, seeing that everything about that as well as Biden's reported plans to put U.S. Marines on merchant vessels in the Persian Gulf to thwart Iranian oil tankers, seizures, everything seems designed 
to either provoke or to send out the message that um, the U.S. is 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 going to be protecting Saudi and its neighbors from Iranian aggression. How does that fit into this sense that maybe Iran and and U.S. are are, are going on some or are sort of shifting e- even slowly to a, a, a diplomatic path? Doesn't doesn't the two contradict each other in a very counterproductive way? Again, what you're saying is exactly uh, the reason why uh, I'm rather inclined to see this current uh, mini deal so uh, important. Uh, in its own right, uh, but I still tend to see this transaction because if you look at the bigger picture, uh, then it's clear that the U.S. priority in the Middle East right now is to bring the Saudis and Israelis uh, closer, even though um, it would imply um, uh, a level of commitment of U.S. to the Saudi security uh, that uh, there is something unheard of, uh, not even uh, during Trump's times, uh, any kind of security guarantee to Saudi Arabia was uh, considered as far as I remember. Now, uh, whether this uh, will uh, indeed um, lead to a NATO level uh, security guarantee to Saudi Arabia, um, I think there are experts who know more about it specifically, but uh, I, frankly, I cannot envisage uh, any uh, circumstance under which the U.S. would uh, uh, accept this level of security commitment to Saudi Arabia because uh, that has to go uh, through the Congress. Yeah. Uh, and now when it comes to Saudi Arabia, uh, even though Saudi Arabia is undoubtedly interested in closer security relations uh, uh, with the United States, uh, it does not mean that it is going to give up on its incipient uh, process of uh, de-escalation uh, and normalization with Iran. Saudi Arabia is not behaving uh, like a U.S. client. It's behaving as a middling power, uh, nationalist power, quite ambitious in its own right, and uh, they will just do uh, what they uh, believe is uh, good for their security and for their development, for their uh, Vision 2030 uh, program and all these ambitious uh, development plans that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is trying to implement. And essential uh, requisite uh, for those uh, plans to prosper is the security in the region. And... Uh, that cannot uh, be uh, assured without some modicum of uh, coexistence with Iran. Again, Saudi Arabia and Iran are not going to become friends or allies, but at least what I see is they are on their path uh, of uh, managing uh, their um, competition and rivalry. And uh, frankly, I do not see the Saudis... Uh, walking this back. Wow. There's a lot going on there. It seems like there's, there's a, a, a definite difference between performative action and real action and what we can uh, expect the Biden administration to do and what it is signaling. 
and why it's signaling and um, a lot of, a lot of tea leaf reading here. Um, but I, you know, really appreciate you coming on the show, Eldar, to talk about all this. And we'll, we'll see how all this plays out in the news uh, in the next six months. I think a lot is going to happen and would love to have you back on the show to talk about it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.